So, I have a little bit of a New Year's question. If you had one last hour to spend with loved ones, how would you spend it? If you had one last hour to spend with the people that you love the most, how would you spend it? Who would you spend it with? What would you do? What would you say? What would you eat? Well, um, the scripture that we're going into today, it sort of has that sort of context, but uh, I want to tell you a story that um, maybe it kind of brings it home a little bit. Um, When I was 11 years old, I I got a call from my buddy. His name was Doug Davis. He became a professional baseball player, but that's besides the point. Um, uh, He was just my buddy, Doug, and he called me up and said, hey, Andy, can you come over? And yeah, I went by Andy. Can you come over for a sleepover? I was really excited because it was like the, the, the last few days of summer, and so it was my last opportunity to have fun. So I ran over to my mom. And, mom, mom, mom. Doug invited me to a sleeper over. Can I go? Can I go? And she goes, why don't you go ask your dad? So I went over to go ask my dad, and I was like slowly walking into the living room. He was in the living room on a bed, on a hospital bed. In fact, he had been lying on that bed for about 10 months, and I think he was thinking some very deep things. And so I went up to my dad, and I looked at my dad. All all his hair was gone, you know, um... He was just bone and skin. He was so thin, and he could speak like above a whisper. But I went up to my dad, and I said, Dad, 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 Doug invited me. Go sleep over. Can I go? Mom asked me, and she said to talk to you. Can I go? Can I go? And my dad said, look to me, and it's almost like he's been wanting to say these words for a while. He looked at me, and with all the energy he had, he didn't have much, but he said, do you know that I love the Smurf? That's what he said to me. And I looked at him and said, um, Dad, okay. Doug asked me if I can go to a sleepover. Can I go, yes or no? And he, and he said it to me one more time. Do you know that I love the Smurf? And I said, Dad! Can I go to Doug's house? Yes or no? Yes, yes or no? And then my dad said that I could. So I ran off and got packed and went to Doug's house. And, and, then, um, and then two months later, my, my father passed away. Now, uh, back then, like, nowadays if you want to watch cartoons, you can just go and watch it, no problem. But back then, you can only watch cartoons on Saturday morning. And I was one of those kids who would get up in the morning and watch cartoons. And one of my favorite cartoons was the Smurf. The Smurfs. And my dad knew that, and so he called me the Smurf. And so as my father was there on his bed, his hospital bed for 10 months, and he was thinking about life, 
he had some last words to tell me, and that was the moment he was trying to tell me that he loved me. And I was, I was 11 years old, I was young, I was too socially, emotionally inept to say, I love you back. But I, I bring up that story because my father knew that his time was coming to an end, and he wanted to express the depth of his love to me. And for the next five weeks, we're going to walk through scriptures that have that same sort of weight and gravity. These are the very last words of Jesus before he was crucified. Now, the context is that Jesus knows his life is coming to an end. And so he has this one last opportunity to sit with his closest friends and to teach them for an hour, for two, maybe for three. And the scriptures say that having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Another translation says, now he showed how utterly he loved them. So we are going for January and February through the, it's called the Upper Room Discourse. It's chapter 13 and 14 and 15 of the Gospel of John. Now, just to give you a little bit of context, okay? Chapter 13 and 14 is what Jesus did during dinner and what he said during dinner. Chapter 15 is what he said on the way to Gethsemane. But these are some of the most precious words of Jesus. See, there's some of the most beloved words of Jesus. The public ministry of Jesus is over. Jesus now turns to his closest friends. And in a sense, he is saying, do you know that I love the Smurf? He is giving one last teaching from the bottom of his heart. Now, normally people save the most important, the most urgent, the most heartfelt for last. I remember a buddy of mine called me and said, I have something to share with you. We, we met over a meal. We had the meal. We we're talking just about life. And at the very end, when I was about to go back to the car, he says, okay, now this is what I wanted to tell you. <laughs> and he told me at the very, very last uh, bit of the conversation. It's kind of like that. Jesus is saving the deepest part of his heart for last. And what you have in these next few chapters are nothing less than just beautiful. So this is the new year. And uh, we couldn't think of a better way to start the new year than going through the very last teaching of Jesus Christ. I don't, I don't know what you're doing in your personal devotions, but why don't you come and join us? John 13, 14, and 15, these are amazing scriptures. Now imagine how much more amazing it would be if you're studying these on your own, you're meditating on these, and then you come on Sunday and we're teaching on these. Okay, John 13, we're going to start 1 through 5, the last teaching of Jesus. And I'm just going to say one more prayer, and so if you would just join me. Father, it's the new year. We're open to new things. And at the first part, we're going to the very last part of your teaching to your closest friends, right straight from the bottom of your heart. Bless the giving of this word. Bless the receiving of this word. I pray that it would be enhanced by the power of your spirit. In this new year, in this new day, we desire your power. We desire clarity to see Jesus. We want to be changed to be more and more like him.
Let your word do its part in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, John 13, here we go. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from the Father and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the feet of his disciples, to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, I want you to imagine the scene. Jesus is having one last dinner with his closest friends. The dinner meeting is in secret, so they don't have any servants or people waiting on them. It's Jesus and his disciples. Now, washing feet meant something to them. It doesn't really mean much to us. Okay, I just need to point that out. Washing feet back then was an act of hospitality. It was an act of hygiene. It was an act of religious ritual of cleansing. But you know something? It was also another thing. It was demeaning. It was gross. Anyone here, aside from me, have a foot odor problem? It's only me. Now, I remember back in the day when Birkenstocks were, were in fashion, right? You guys remember that, right? I think it was probably worse back then because the leather, I think, absorbs all the sweat from your feet, right? Nowadays, we have exchanged Birkenstocks for Crocs, right? Which might be arguably worse because all that stuff doesn't get absorbed. It's just there on your plastic, whatever you're wearing on your, your feet, right? It's just, ugh. Okay, but here's the thing. Nowadays... In the Bay Area, the weather is rather moderate. Back then in Israel, it was really hot. It was really humid. So you're walking around in these leather sandals all the day long. You're going from village to village to village. You're sweating in your feet. All the sweat is accumulating. I want you to imagine how that smells. I want you to imagine how that feels. I want you to imagine how that smells to the person next to you. Okay? Can you smell how sour it is? Now, added to this, they're walking around from village to village to village, and in the heat of the day, and back then, there's dusty roads, and they would have animals walking these roads, and animal feces would be on the road. You're trying not to step in it, but it's unavoidable. You're going to step in it. So, now you have sweat accumulation on your feet, dust, animal feces, all on your feet. It's rather disgusting. Now, this kind of work, the cleaning of dirty feet, was done by the lowest kind of servant. It was so demeaning that a Jewish master is not supposed to ask a Jewish slave to do it, but you could ask a Gentile slave. There is an apocryphal story in Israel of a couple named Joseph and Asenath who lived in Egypt in the time of the pharaohs, 
and Asenath is the bride, and she's so in love with her husband that when he comes home, she says to her husband, I want to wash your feet. He's stunned by this. He goes, no, 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 get up. A servant would do this. She says, no. She says, your feet are my feet. Your hands are my hands. Another woman will never wash your feet. Does anyone like this story? My wife does not like this story. No, I'm kidding. I, I, I never asked her, but I just, we, maybe we both don't like this story. It, my point is a very rare story. Uh, it's very rare for a wife to wash her husband's feet. It's like non-existent for a husband to wash his wife's feet. We don't have that ancient story. In another ancient story, some disciples love their rabbi so much that they try to wash his feet. They try. But I'll tell you, there's no stories of a higher status person like a rabbi washing the feet of the lower status person. We just don't have that story. We do now. So I want you to imagine this. Right in the middle of dinner, Jesus gets up. He goes to the back. You know what they were talking about during dinner? You know, it's, it's, make, it's, it's 12, so it's like a big table. People are having different side conversations. Do you know what some of the disciples were talking about? They were arguing about which one of them was the greatest. In the Last Supper. Now, I don't know. I, I don't know if this is like hard to relate to or, or not so hard to relate to. I remember there was a vacation where I just couldn't stand my brother being so bossy, you know? I don't know if you guys are like me, but I wanted to be the one that people respected, not my brother. I mean, it was inside me. I wouldn't clothe it like we were fighting about who wants to be the greatest. But maybe it was like, why does Peter and James and John, they have this inner circle with Jesus, and who are we? We're just kind of left out. Why does Peter always feel like everything revolves around him and that he's the first? So anyway, they're having this side conversation. Jesus gets up, and he walks out. Now, I don't know this has happened before. Maybe Peter turns to John, who is probably sitting right next to Jesus, and said, hey, John, where did the master go? And then maybe John said, I don't know. Why do you always ask me? And so they're waiting. And then Jesus returns back to the table. And Jesus is looking like this. Do you know who that is, by the way? That is a random guy that I found on the internet. It's kind of hard to find a person with just a towel that's not really overly muscular or, okay, a random guy on the internet. But that's, that's, that's what Jesus must have looked like. Now, I want you to keep in mind that John has said that God has given all things into his hands, the hands of Jesus, which means that he is in control, which means that he is the king. This is how King Jesus dresses. It's shocking. It, you you, you kind of like, what are you doing? What are you wearing? What is this? Jesus, you're looking very humble. But if you think about it, isn't this the very reason why we love Jesus? Isn't this why we love him? I mean, he is a king which causes the knee to bend but he dresses like this 
in humility, which causes the heart to melt. The Lord of the universe, with all authority and power, stoops so low to wash our dirty feet. Who is this? As one poet put it, His majesty is sweetened by meekness. He is worthy of all good, but he was patient to suffer evil. He baffled the proud scribes with his wisdom, but was humble to be loved by children. He came in on Palm Sunday like a king to the throne, but tomorrow on Good Friday he would go to the cross like a lamb to be slaughtered. Verse 6. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Now, for the same reason that Joseph tried to say no to Asenath, Peter instinctively says no to Jesus. Please don't do this. This is so beneath you. This is so demeaning. This is like lowly servant work. We can't have you, our master, do this. What does this mean about you? What does it mean about ourselves? Please don't do this. But Jesus says, you don't understand this now, but afterwards you will. What is it that Jesus is assuming that Peter doesn't understand? Foot washing was foreshadowing of what Jesus was going to do on the cross. Jesus, the next day, was going to die the worst kind of death. Dying on the cross is the worst, the most demeaning, the most torturous and shameful way for a human being to die. And Jesus is saying, that's what I'm going to do for all of you. Just like right now, I'm stooping so low to wash dirty feet. Tomorrow, I'm going to stoop so low to die a criminal's death, to be tortured to death, to pay for the penalty of your sin. He lived the life that we could not live, and he died the death we deserve to die to pay for the penalty of our sins. This is King Jesus, verse 12. When he had washed their feet, put on his outer garments, and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet... Now, let me paraphrase this. If I, your Lord and teacher, and you're right in calling me your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, have taken the lowest place, have humbled myself to serve you, right? You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, by the way, let me stop right there. If you know these things, how many of you have heard that story before? You raise your hand. I bet you like 98% of the people here have heard this story before. You have known these things. If you know these things, does it say you will be blessed? No, it doesn't say that. What does it say? If you know these things, you will be blessed if you what? If you do them. We, we know a lot. What do we do? We might be inspired but what really matters is what we do, right? We're blessed here by what we do. And may the Lord give us the right heart to do it. Okay. <clears throat> now, uh, this way, this, at this point, it's kind of the halfway message, uh, point of the message. 
I think right now it's really important for us, since Jesus has made the expectations very clear, I have done these things, calling you to do these things, this is the Christian way, what does it mean to wash one another's feet? What does it mean to wash one another's feet? I think it's a very, very important question. Um, I, I will say there's different sort of takes on this, and I'm going for what's very practical, maybe very common to, in terms of applying this. What does it mean to wash the person's foot next to me or the, the one to my left or to my right? Let me put it like this. To wash another person's feet is to humble yourself to serve the needs of other people. I wanted to make it really simple. It's humble yourself to serve the needs of other people. Now, it could be more than that. It certainly doesn't mean less than that. Let me put it like this. Richard Foster writes, more than any single way the grace of humility is worked, let me say this again, more than any single way the grace of humility is worked into our lives is through the discipline of service. Being humble is very conceptual. Serving the needs of the person next to you is very practical. The way that you apply the conceptual is through the practical. Let me put it uh, another way. Let me put it in the visual. Um, Jared, can you just stand up? Jared and I have been preparing for this role. We've done so by both growing out our beards for one month time. One week time for him. For me, it is three, three months and, and counting. Okay. So, um, so Jared and I, uh, we come as equals, and I have every right to just look at Jared in the eye and to stay up here, right? But let's just say that Jared is one of the disciples, and he's coming in. He's wearing the Birkenstocks. He's been traveling from village to village. He's been stepping in animal dung, and plus he has like a sweaty foot problem. Right now, everyone around here can smell something. It's not coming from me. It's coming from the feet of Jared. Jared has a real need. Where is the need? It's down there. Now, I need to, if I'm going to serve Jared, actually let go of my right to look at him eye and eye and actually go down to his need. I have to lower myself to actually meet him in this place of need. It's one and the same. I'm lowering myself, but I'm serving him and I'm cleansing what is dirty, and I'm, I'm giving refreshment to what is smelly. I'm meeting people in their place of need. You all get that. Thank you, Jared. So let me just ask you, if washing feet, I mean, it is literal, and actually today, we're going to give you an opportunity to literally wash the foot of someone else, okay? Now, I, now remember in this context, it was between close friends. So it probably wouldn't be the most appropriate thing to go over someone that you don't know very well, or, or maybe someone that you have a crush on, and you know, just you just don't not gonna do that. Um, it's between people who have a close relationship with one another, and maybe you actually might be inspired by the spirit to ask someone. It could be symbolically very powerful. But let me ask you this: What are the needs of the people around you? Jesus is sitting there in dinner. <laughs> you know, everyone is smelling something. It's not very pleasant. There's no servant. And Jesus stoops very low to meet practical needs of his disciples. What are the needs of the people around you? Uh, for all those of you who are married, what are the needs of your spouse? 
Husbands, take a long searching look at your wives. Wives, take a long searching look at your what what are their needs? Have you thought about that? It's New Year's. I remember asking uh, a husband uh, and and wife couple, and I, I asked the the wife, "What what do you need from your husband?" And she said, "I need quality time." And I asked the husband, "What do you need from your spouse?" And he says, "I need to come home from work and watch TV, veg and watch TV." What are the needs of your spouse? I will say that we just went on vacation for two weeks. We went to Connecticut, and um, there was one evening that we got into something. See, this is what happened. When, when I, I was on vacation, I was tired. I just wanted to do a lot of nothing, just nothing, just nothing. And, and Raina was a little bit nervous about our future, like 18 months from now, and so she wanted us both to do something. So that was the conflict. I want to do nothing. She wants us to do something. And so one night, we just, we just couldn't, and I, I was just like, I am so justified in my right to want to do nothing. And so I realized what my wife needs at this moment is for me to let go of my right to self-justify and just to listen to what she's saying, but I couldn't do it. And I just like, Lord, I know what she's asking me to do. I just can't. And so we had to stop and just pray. And I'll just be honest with you, that night, it didn't get any better. It got worse after prayer, but the next day, it got much better. Which kind of leads me to my next question, which is, what if you know the needs of someone, but you do not have the energy or the strength or the willpower to do it? Which I think is a great question. Hold on to that question. Parents, what are the needs of your kids? What are the needs? How can you stoop low and wash the feet? What, how can you meet them in their needs? I, I know that as a dad, I have a tendency to want to do something and say, hey kids, let's do this. Let's, let's do homework. Let's do this. Let's do piano. Let's do this. Let's go work out. Let's do this. And as I was thinking about that, I think my kids really need a dad who will look at them in their strengths and passions and be like, I'm going to join you and follow you in what you like to do. I'm going to play with you in your playground. I think my kids need a dad who's going to catch them doing something good and praise them instead of catch them doing something bad and criticize them. For those of you who have parents, what do you think your parents need? Have you thought about that? Some of you might have aging parents. What do your parents need from you? I think parents would really love it if we would just call them up on the phone, make some time with them, and just share with them what's going on inside our heart, going inside in our mind. Anyone here, like your parents, like, hey, how are you doing? Like, fine. What's going on? Oh, nothing. I'm okay. What if we just call them and really talk to them? I think you would be meeting some needs of your parents, I would say, in a very special way. Raina once was reading a book, and she shared with me what she was reading from this. Can you guess what the number one need is from mother-in-law's? what they need from their grown-up children. Anyone want to guess? Number one response, according to the book that Raina read, is appreciation. 
They feel like I, we do all these things for you and you just kind of take it for granted. But if you could just appreciate and acknowledge what we do, it would mean a lot to us. What's the number one thing you think that daughter-in-laws and son-in-laws need from their in-laws? Number one thing this book said. Answer, money. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> you know what they need? They need encouragement instead of criticism. We all have these needs. Deep inside, I want my in-law to look at me and go, hey, you're doing good things. To be encouraging. What are the needs of those around you? And how can you stoop low to meet those needs? It's the way of Jesus. It's the Jesus way. It's the way to the highest reward according to Jesus. What are the needs of your roommates? What are the needs of your closest friends? What is the need of your boyfriend, girlfriend? What does the homeless man that you pass by need from you? Maybe not what they want, but what do they truly, truly need? And now this last question. What do you do if you know what the need is, but you don't have the strength or the energy or the willpower to do it? And I would say, that's why we desperately need the Lord's Supper. Not the bread and the juice, but we need what it means. Where does the power and the energy and the motivation to stoop low and to meet the needs of people around? Where does that come from? Especially if you feel like you're depleted, you're not motivated. It comes from here. It comes from knowing that Jesus, who is the Lord of the universe, He's the creator of the universe. No one is standing as tall as Jesus as He stood before creation and after He went back to heaven. And you see how tall He stands and then you see on the cross that He stoops so low to meet us in our place of greatest need. It does something to your heart. It breaks your heart. It gives you energy. It gives you inspiration. It gives you that sense that this is the path forward. And that's why we have to celebrate what Jesus did on a regular basis to remember what he did because it gives us strength for the road that is ahead. Father God, I thank you so much for this incredible message of Jesus. I feel so lucky and so blessed to have preached this message for so long. It's not just the Lord of the universe who says, come and obey me. But it's this master who gets down and stoops so low to tend to our greatest need. And we say, we want to obey, we want to love you. We pray, Father, that you would set us on the right trajectory this whole year, loving you, serving others, and giving you great glory. In Jesus' name we pray.